Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. As always, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today I am not joined by my intrepid co-host, Dr. Reed Robison. He's out today, so you'll have to settle for just little old me. I am honored to be joined by Jonathan Robinson, though, and we're going to discuss his book, Ecstasy as Medicine, how MDMA therapy can help you overcome trauma, anxiety, and depression, and feel more love. Jonathan is a psychotherapist and author of several best-selling books. His work has appeared in Newsweek, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, as well as dozens of other publications. Jonathan has even made numerous appearances on The Oprah Show and on CNN. He is also the host of a popular podcast called Awareness Explorers. Jonathan and I discuss what he's learned from facilitating over 700 MDMA therapy sessions since the 80s. We talk about why MDMA seems to be so effective, how his approach differs from the one used in the MAPS MDMA therapy protocols, the pros and cons of doing these sessions over Zoom versus in person, how MDMA can be used in couples work, how to get the most out of a therapeutic MDMA session, the potential legal ramifications of doing this work right now at the beginning of 2024, and much, much more. A couple of announcements before we get into the episode. If you're looking for professional training pursuant to becoming a psychedelic assisted practitioner, check out the courses we offer here at Numinous. You can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection and use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. You hear Reed and I talk a lot about the psychedelic clinical trial work that Numinous does. If you or someone you know is interested in being a participant in a psychedelic clinical trial, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash research to learn more about the trials we're currently running. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by sharing the episode with somebody you think might like to listen to it. You can leave us a review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're watching on YouTube, you can subscribe to the channel, like the video, comment below. Without further ado, here is my interview with Jonathan Robinson. Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, everybody. Um, Reed is out today. It's pretty rare that you get just one or the other of us. But uh, I'm honored to be joined today by Jonathan Robison to talk about MDMA-assisted therapy in, in his new book. Welcome, Jonathan. Good to be here, Steve. and looking forward to this. Awesome. So um, we had a chance to chat a bit before we hit record, but why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a bit about you. Sure. Well, I was uh, blessed to have a, a very dysfunctional family, <clears throat> so I, I uh, was severely depressed as a teenager. And that got me interested in what I could do to kind of unwind all that depression and neurosis. So by the time I was like 14, I was meditating every day and trying drugs. And when I came across MDMA, also known as ecstasy and molly, I said, hey, this stuff could really be great for working through this stuff. I ended up doing my master's degree on the therapeutic effects of MDMA on PTSD way back in 1984. And then three oh, weeks wow. later, uh, the U.S. government made it illegal. So I did. I then became a psychotherapist, became an underground therapist where I led these journeys. And only in recent years have I been more forthcoming because, you know, it's now more accepted wrote this book, Exorcy as Medicine. But, you know, most people know me as a psychotherapist that has written other books. I was on Oprah a lot in the 90s. And um, and I have also focused a lot on spirituality and enlightenment. So part of my interest in ecstasy has been how to use it both therapeutically and as a spiritual growth tool, which I think is uh, has enormous potential for. And I'm just trying to get the word out as to all the different ways you can use this uh, sacred medicine. There's so much that we could dive into there, but I'd love to start where you started, Jonathan. Um, a lot of us, myself included, who find our way to the helping professions started with our own suffering, you know, that our own suffering mm -hmm. uh, prompted curiosities and a desire to feel better, a desire to figure ourselves out. I'm curious what it was like for you when you first experienced MDMA. And I guess, had you experienced other like more classic psychedelics before you tried MDMA? 
Well, I first tried LSD, and that showed me that there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. And in fact, you can enjoy life. It's not something you just have to suffer through. But when I tried MDMA, I realized that it could help me unwind all the suffering and trauma I had experienced. My stepfather used to beat me up a lot and that I would could use as a therapeutic tool. Back then, you know, a lot of people were using it just to have fun dancing and such, which can be great. But using MDMA as a dance party drug is a little bit like using a laptop as a doorstop. You know, it'll work. <laughs> a laptop will work as a doorstop and MDMA will work as a dance party drug. But there's better uses for MDMA than as a dance party drug, just like there's better uses for a laptop than a doorstop. So I, I really started using it on myself. I started using it with clients. I used it in my master's thesis and I saw that I could develop a protocol that in one day would lead to maybe two years of therapy outcomes and um, both used it for myself to actually get back to that state of openness and love very quickly. And, you know, it used to take me several hours of meditation to feel like I was on MDMA, but now it only takes about 30 seconds and I can find my way back to that peace and love. Mm. Yeah. You know, sometimes we talk about psychedelics generally, or maybe MDMA specifically as, as way showers, right? They can kind of show you mm -hmm. a way to a state that is otherwise very difficult for you to experience. And I've heard that from people where, like you described, they might've had a hard time experiencing self-love or self-compassion or that observer state that one experiences in mindfulness meditation. And then after a psychedelic experience, it's like, oh, I've been kind of shown the path. I didn't get to set up shop there or, or create a home there, I, but at least I can find my way back a little easier. Yeah. And one of the things I do with the clients I work with, and, and something that's unusual is that when COVID hit, I started to do these sessions over uh, Zoom. And hmm. to my surprise and everybody else's surprise, they actually worked better over Zoom than in person. And that created a lot more convenience and a lot bigger audience. But what I found is that once people have a forevision of what's possible, if I ask them certain questions about how they are experiencing this open state, they can kind of create a breadcrumb trail back to that experience of opening and love and peace uh, much more easily. You know, it doesn't take years of meditation. It takes uh, just a, a certain amount of detail as to how their brain creates that state without the medicine. And that's been really valuable because, you know, I've been known as a guy who writes spiritual books and, and help people towards deeper peace. So the fact that I could do that with this medicine was really um, very heartwarming to me. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, so we're kind of talking about how um, profound the changes can be and how rapidly the changes can occur. You mentioned sort of it being like two years of therapy in one session. You hear that said about other psychedelics. People will say it's like 10 years of therapy in a day. And uh, what do you think it is about the MDMA experience that allows for such rapid change? You know, as a psychotherapist, you often spend a lot of time creating safety and trust so you can get to the real deep issues. And uh, with MDMA, rather than that taking a year or two, uh, you do it in like 10 minutes. And once somebody mm. is completely open um, and honest and not avoiding anything and they trust you and there's that connection, these deeper conditionings arise naturally and you can work through them. And there's no defensiveness. It's almost like I feel like I'm rewiring somebody's brain with their permission. Uh, whereas normally people have a lot of subtle defenses that keep them from seeing things accurately or keep them from uh, knowing what would actually help to change their conditioning or their trauma. 
So this makes me think of a point that you make in the book about how your approach is a bit different than what we see in the MAPS trials of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. You know, there you mentioned that when the defenses are relaxed, there's something that, that we get access to that's harder to do when the defenses are up in arms. Um, MAPS is sort of a, a non-directive approach that, that uh you know, at least the, for any of our listeners, listeners who aren't aware, you want to just describe maybe some of the differences between the MAPS protocol and, and the way you approach this work? Yeah, it's a pretty significant difference. First, uh, the MAPS protocol is largely to give somebody a blindfold, have them uh, put on the blindfold, and then listen to uh, music and see what shows up mm -hmm. for them. And a therapist writes down notes maybe occasionally asking questions or some support, but it's not really a therapeutic talking process. It's more of a, let's see what comes up when you listen to music process. And the reason they did that was they were trying to get FDA approval. And the FDA is called the Food and Drug Administration. It's not called the Food and Therapy Administration. So they wanted to see if just giving people a pill would cure them of PTSD even without doing the therapy during the session. And the results were, yes, it actually works. Now, that was mostly to get FDA approval, though. In the 1970s, therapists were using this more as a, a talk therapy enhancer, and they were getting outlandish results. Um, and I was as well with my clients when I did my master's thesis. So uh, I continued to do it that way. You know, I wasn't aware of this blindfold and, and uh, music protocol. So I developed a way of, of uh, actually doing talk therapy. And I use a lot of methods, uh, internal family systems, prolonged exposure, EMDR. Everything works better with MDMA on it, you know. <laughs> so it was yeah. a, um, a real sense that, wow, this is fantastic for therapy and although the MAPS protocol does have years of studies showing that it works, I do think uh, doing talk therapy and various modalities works significantly better. I just don't have the millions of dollars in 20 years to prove it yet. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I'm excited about for future research, because like you say, a lot of these early psychedelic clinical trials have to be very, very stark, I guess, because they're trying to show organizations mm -hmm. like the FDA that the medicine is safe and that it can be effective. Um, but I've always been curious, like we do with ketamine, since it's, you know, where you can use it off label and get creative with it, what psychedelics and MDMA could do when combined with these more active therapeutic approaches, like the ones you described. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, what I find is besides that you aren't dealing with people's defenses and people are open and honest, that there's an advantage that I can give people a technique and they can try it out and they can tell me usually within a minute if that technique will work for them. So it speeds up everything, mm. meaning that, oh, that one, that technique didn't work or that technique really was amazing, you know. And then usually like a week later, I do an integration session where I'm taking the insights and the methods that worked for them, and we talk about how to integrate that into their daily life. And I think the integration sessions are really important in that you want to make sure that you're doing what works for you consistently. You know, the key to success in any area is do the right thing and do it consistently. So I developed a, a motivational protocol that helps people to be consistent with what uh, they found to be the most useful things during the MDMA journey. Can you give us any examples of what that motivational protocol might look like for people? Because I agree with you about integration, it's, it's key. Yeah, well, I have a couple chapters in Ecstasy as Medicine where I go into some depth, but just one example, one of the techniques is Let's say you decide that you want to do a certain type of meditation for 10 minutes a day, that that becomes, you realize like that would be really useful if I did that technique. Well, a lot of people have a hard time sticking with that, but 
I say, okay, make a contract with me and you that says that you will do this type of meditation for at least 10 minutes a day. And every day that you don't do that, rip up $1. Well, people Mm -hmm. hate ripping up a (laughs) dollar. So that gets them to do that meditation every single day. You know, maybe one day a month they miss it. But uh, that $1 of ripped up money got them to meditate every day uh, for the month, except for one day. And those types of little, I don't know, call them techniques, can be incredibly helpful for making sure that people are consistent with what is useful. You know, everybody knows how to lose weight, eat less or exercise more, but most people can't be consistent. And some of the motivational protocols I developed were really good at getting people to do what they know is going to help make their life better. And just for clarity's sake, is that something you would bring up in the medicine session or do you only introduce those things in the integration session? I only introduce in the integration session. Um, And we go over a lot of details. You know, if that technique doesn't work for them, I have others. But most people who are taking psychedelics or MDMA, they get a lot out of the session, but they don't really have a good system for taking their insights and putting it into daily life. And I think that that's just as important as the journey. So I spend a fair amount of time working with the clients and in the Ecstasy as Medicine book, uh, talking about that. And I also, you know, do a, a training where I train people, therapists, coaches, whatever, to do this type of work. Because when it does get FDA approval, a lot of people are going to want this type of therapy but they aren't going to want to pay the $14,000 that it's going to cost in clinics. You know, a lot of the people I train, they, they'll, they'll do it for a thousand dollars, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and get just as good a results. So I'm training a lot of people in how to do this. And a large part of that training is how to keep people motivated to do the things that will really improve their life. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me of um, a point you make in the book about the difference between uh, MDMA as a solo experience or maybe MDMA with a friend versus MDMA with a trained facilitator, a therapist or a guide or a coach. Um, And maybe one of those major differences is the structure that you're talking about. Yeah. Now, in the book, I do talk about how to do it on your own. But, you know, people have taken this in raves or done it on their own are are always very surprised at how different it is when you have a guide. Um, it, you know, you can focus, you can go deep. Where when you take it on your own, it's hard to go deep into some of your issues on your own. Even me, with all the experience I've had, I really I'll hire a guide who who can help guide me in ways that are really effective. Uh, you know, in fact. Many years ago, my wife and I were having difficulties in our marriage. What had happened was that she was very angry at me for little things. You know, I'd keep a light on and she'd get livid. And this went on for like three months. It was very unpleasant. So I hired a guide to help us uh, with whatever was going on. Neither of us really knew. Well, it ends up when she was on MDMA, it came up that her aunt had died three months earlier and she had wanted to visit her aunt, but was too busy. And she was very upset at her self subconsciously for not visiting her aunt before she died. And the way it manifested was taking it out on me. Well, when this came up in the session, you know, she cried and she had to forgive herself and I held her after that session, her anger at me was completely gone. So sometimes hmm. a person doesn't even know what is going on for them, but the medicine knows what's going on and will bring it up. And only with a guide can you necessarily work through some of these unresolved issues that uh, are kind of lurking in the background. 
So it sounds like this was profound between you and your wife. And and when you study the history of MDMA-assisted therapy back in the 70s and early 80s, you hear a lot about its potential or its power for couples counseling, right? For working in with couples. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about the MDMA experience in a couple that makes it so useful, potentially useful? Yeah. Well, actually, now I'm working with the MAPS organization to uh, collect data on its effectiveness with couples. Um, you know, when you're a couple in a couple and you're kind of upset at somebody and you don't kind of trust them, maybe there was a breach of trust of some kind, it's very hard to work out the issues with somebody who you don't fully trust and who you're kind of upset with. What MDMA does is it restores trust and restores that emotional connection. And when we're, when you're trying to work out something with somebody that you do trust and that you feel close to, it's actually quite easy. So a lot of times I can help couples work through issues that they weren't able to work through in couples therapy for a decade. And we worked it out in you know an hour because the trust and the emotional connection is restored. So I think it's really um, how the MDMA gives people, at least temporarily, that safety and that trust so that they can work out, you know, how do you deal with the kids? How do you deal with money? How do you deal with the sex issue? And then a week later, when I talked to them in the integration session, I asked them, okay, what we worked out for how to deal with this, that still worked for you. And almost always people agree, yeah, that, that still works. You know, I'm glad we came to some agreement about that. So the trust-enhancing properties of MDMA, it makes sense why that would be helpful for couples counseling. It makes sense why that would be helpful for PTSD, right, where you can uh, lower the fear response and enhance maybe self-trust or trust in another person. I wonder if there are circumstances where that trust-enhancing property could be dangerous for somebody. I'm thinking of people taking MDMA with others that they don't know well, or they're in a romantic relationship that's really new, or they're in an abusive relationship. What do you think, Jonathan? Is there, are there circumstances where you, you might want to be more cautious? Well, yeah, I think so. Any, any powerful medicine has potential downsides. Uh, you know, one of the potential downsides of, of this type of work was some therapists can cross boundaries, you know, or they want to date mm-hmm. their client or something like that. We actually are able to prevent those issues because I do most of my sessions over Zoom. So there's a clear boundary and there's no, there's, there's sexual and physical safety, uh, because mm-hmm. of that. Um, but yeah, you know, you might, uh, when you start a relationship, you might want to make a commitment because it's so wonderful. You're in, you're in new relationship energy and you think everything's perfect. Well, you know, some things take time and, and you see that, uh, maybe that partner wasn't right for you. The same thing with if, if couples are in an abusive situation, you know, I, I don't suggest doing the MDMA therapy. I suggest that you get out of that relationship rather than try to repair it because the medicine uh, can't necessarily deal with all of a, a abusive partner's issues, excuse me, in one session. So not only are there psychological times that might not be appropriate, but also there's contraindications physically. Like if somebody is taking SSRIs or antidepressant medicines, I have a whole chapter in, in the book, Ecstasy as Medicine, about all the contraindications to doing this type of therapy. And and you want to be aware of those because if you mix certain drugs together, you don't get a good effect. Which you go into a little bit in the book, but um, maybe for just uh, for our audience's benefit, could you talk about some of those contraindications? Sure. Um, the most common ones are people are on antidepressants. If you're on antidepressants and you take MDMA, normally what happens is you don't feel the MDMA hardly at all because they both work through the same neural pathway. Um, so in those cases, I have a whole thing in the book about how to wean yourself off and talk to your doctor and all kinds of uh, specific information. Uh, there are things called MAO inhibitors that if you take MDMA with those types of drugs, 
which aren't very popular anymore. But if you take them, they can have a very dangerous combination leading to something called serotonin syndrome. And there's other, you know, people have all kinds of medicines now. You know, the average American is on like two different medicines. And you have to know what the uh, interactions are. Sometimes with my clients, I work with several medical doctors who will tell me if a person's uh, particular medicines, it might be thyroid medicine or whatever it is, if that creates a problem, if they're on MDMA, if they take MDMA. And you have to um, be aware of all that because uh, MDMA does not mix with certain things very well. And that can be a problem. What about other problems that people report with MDMA? Um, you know, people talk about jaw clenching. People talk about um, shaking. People also talk about feeling depressed and down um, mm -hmm. in the days following an MDMA experience. Do you see that in your clients? And if so, any tips on how to mitigate those issues? Yeah. Um, now, I do have like a chapter in the book on each of those questions. So, you know, there's a lot there, but I will try to summarize some yeah. of the most important things. Um, first of all, it's important to know that 40% of the MDMA in America is not pure MDMA. It's often mixed with bath salts or methamphetamine. <clears throat> and a lot of the side effects people report are due to they're not getting pure MDMA. That's one thing. Another thing is that um, if you take a magnesium supplement, like ma magnesium glycinate, 300 milligrams at the same time as the MDMA, that will usually uh, alleviate things like the, the, the jaw clenching uh, during the session. Then in the book, I mention eight different supplements you can take, depending on how, how thorough you want to be, to avoid the after effects of MDMA. Uh, things like alpha lipoic acid and L-carnitine, uh, grape seed extract. I, there's a lot of them there. And uh, people find that they take some or all of those supplements. They usually don't have that problem afterwards, especially if they're taking pure MDMA. Yeah, in my at least to my knowledge, you can tell me if you understand differently. I've heard that most of these recommendations for supplements come from the community. They come from people who've experimented with this some stuff. I mean, magnesium helps relax muscles. We know that, um, but it's not like these have been rigorously studied. So I, I guess, and you make the caveat in the book that people should proceed with caution. Mm -hmm. Actually, one of them has been significantly studied now and shown to have major effect, and that is uh, a supplement called alpha lipoic acid plus L-carnitine. And um, I give dosages and such in the book about that. But things like 5-HTP or vitamin C or some of these other ones, they're more of a, hey, I think this worked for me, so you might try it. Right. Um, you may, I bookmarked this in my mind. You mentioned the Zoom sessions a couple of times. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really curious about that. So uh, you, you mentioned a few things, why a few reasons why you think it's actually even like better than in-person sessions. Are there, are there mm -hmm. reasons why you would want to have an in-person session versus a Zoom session and, and vice versa? Yeah, there are certain situations. If I'm really afraid of, you know, if, if people have had extremely difficult MDMA, which is almost never unheard of, but more psychedelic sessions, I might want to uh, have them be in person in case they have a difficulty. When I do the sessions over Zoom, I usually have them have a friend nearby, either in their house or within a 15-minute drive, just in case there's a problem. Uh, of the 700 sessions that I've done that has never been a problem, but it's an added layer of safety. But, you know, if somebody like has had vomiting on psychedelics a lot, and they may even have certain health conditions that I'm worried about, I would, in some cases, want them to be in person, if it were possible, just to uh, supervise them more closely. And, um, but, you know, that's so rare nowadays that I'd say it's it only happens in one out of 50 people that I'm working with. 
And you found that the Zoom sessions work, that people are able to sort of create a, a safe space, a private space, an uninterrupted space for themselves. And um, you can stay attuned for five hours or so over Zoom. It, it, uh, it works for you, huh? Well, that was really surprising to me. You know, I only did that when COVID hit as an experiment. And, you know, the first few sessions were people who I'd done in-person sessions with before. And they said, hey, that was much better. You know, I really like that. <laughs> and it ends up on MDMA, no one, literally no one has a hard time looking at a computer screen for four or five hours. In fact, they never even ask for a break. So I'm the one that has to ask for a break. Now, I'm not taking the medicine, but, you know, when you're really involved in something deeply, like somebody's psychology, it's very engrossing. So even I can sit and look at a screen for four or five hours helping somebody. But, you know, in terms of why this works better over Zoom, my best guess is somebody's in the most comfortable situation possible, their own home. They often have a pet nearby um, that they can spend time with. Um, and also, you know, if I'm working with, say, a woman who's been sexually traumatized in some way, having them come to my office or house and take a drug, uh, that that's a big ass. They already have trauma around men and drugs, you know. So mm -hmm. the safety of having a, a clear boundary physically actually allows people to open up and feel safer than they've ever felt before. You combine that with the MDMA and you got a pretty magical combination. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I'm, I'm, some of these questions are going to be all over the place, so forgive me, but uh, I, I remember no being problem. struck by the, the story of your parents taking MDMA. I wonder if you could tell that story. Yeah, sure. You know, um, my parents always wondered why I was into spirituality and meditation and such. And I say, well, you know, it's kind of hard to describe. I'm looking for a certain experience in life. And they say, well, how can we have that experience? So I told them, well, you know, there's a, a, a drug called MDMA that kind of mimics the experience I'm looking for. And they, to my surprise, they said, um, can we try it? So I said, well, yeah, okay. And I, I got them some medicine and, and told them how to set up a good set and setting and said, you know, take it sometime in the next few months. Well, a year later, I asked them if they ever took the drug and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we took a couple months back. And so I said, well, how was it? <laughs> and to my surprise, they said, well, it didn't really have any effect. And that surprised me. I gave him a hefty dose. <laughs> so I said, well, what'd you do that night? And they said, well, you know, we took the drug and we waited like 10 or 15 minutes. Well, it ends up it takes about 45 minutes for the drug to take effect. So, you know, they said that they waited 10 or 15 minutes and nothing happened. So we had the rest of the night, you know, nothing planned. So we sat on the couch. And then, you know, we ended up talking about how much we loved each other and how wonderful our lives were. And we worked out a couple of issues that we'd been dealing with. And then we cuddled on the couch for hours. It ended up being the best night of our 40-year marriage. It was wonderful. The only disappointment was the drug never took effect. And I'm <laughs> laughing at this point. You know, I'm thinking they, they just had no clue that that was the drug. I said, when was the last time you sat on the couch, talked about how much you love each other and worked out stuff? They said, oh, that never happened before. It was just a great coincidence that we had set aside all that time and that could happen. But, you know, at lower, even medium doses, MDMA doesn't so much feel like a drug as it feels like you at your most open and best. And I think that's a real plus, you know, that doesn't feel like a whole otherworldly thing. It seems like, gee, maybe I've been on a bad drug my whole life. And this was the first time I was actually feeling normal. I love the way you say that, that uh, for some people on MDMA, it's feeling like their best self, right? It's, it's coming home to mm -hmm. their unburdened self. And that perhaps that's one of the things that's, that sets it apart from other psychedelics. Um, 
I wonder if you have any other thoughts about how MDMA-assisted therapy might be different from maybe psilocybin or LSD-assisted therapy. Yeah, I I do have a chapter devoted to that in the book. And, you know, think of it that if you're trying to fix your car, you need different tools. You know, you might need a hammer, you might need a screwdriver, you might need a, a thing for the pistons, whatever. And MDMA is really great for therapy and helping you open up your heart. It's great for relationships and it's great for learning what peace is like. Whereas LSD is more like opening you up to how you're missing a lot of the stimulation of the world and you're missing different dimensions. Um, it's more suitable for say, you know, psilocybin is more suitable for overcoming depression Things like ketamine is really great for depression as well. Um, so, you know, you want to get the right tool to the right person for what they're looking to experience. But I find MDMA is a little bit like a Swiss army knife. It does a lot of things really well. It's known for PTSD, but that's just because that's where the trials were focused. Uh, New trials have shown that it's really good for addiction and it's really good for uh, curing loneliness and can be quite effective for depression as well. So um, I think LSD is and psilocybin are more suitable for opening a person to an expanded spiritual dimension and dealing with depression, whereas MDMA does a lot of things well, especially trauma work. Yeah. You know, you mentioned spirituality and that that's, um, you know, it was a focus of yours earlier in life and is continues to be a focus of yours. I wonder how you define spirituality and how, uh, if you do, how you use MDMA as a tool for spiritual seekers. Yeah, people define that really differently. And I, I have a very simple definition. Um, anything that helps you to experience more love, inner peace, or joy, or makes you a more giving person. Hmm. So those are my four targets, so to speak. And I find that MDMA is amazing at helping people to do that. I, I do something called love training, which is once people are in touch with that experience, I ask them a lot of questions about what they're experiencing in their body, their mind, any phrases that go along with it, any energetic movements that help so that they can experience that um, more easily without the medicine later. And that's been a real boon to a lot of my clients in the training that I do for coaches and therapists, uh, people can learn about that, mdmatraining.net. Um, I go into a lot of depth about how, you know, we're all looking for love and inner peace. We just have different ways of doing it. And, and people have unique ways of experiencing that. So what I'm calling spirituality is the ability to get back to that heaven within, we'll call it, um, in any situation as quickly as possible. And mm -hmm. once you learn that there's peace underneath all the turmoil and all the thoughts and all the stories in your mind, and you know the roadmap back to that, well, that's when you have a friend for life. That that changes your life. Yeah, a roadmap roadmap back to peace. That sounds that sounds pretty appealing. Um, <laughs> it'd be pretty appealing to have that as a friend for life for sure. And everybody has somewhat unique ways of doing that. <clears throat> you know, I've spent some time in a Buddhist monastery, some time in a Hindu monastery, some time in a Christian monastery, and um, so I have a lot of background in a lot of different religions, and they all have these different approaches. But the good news is you don't need to spend years clearing out all your trauma or, or meditating for years. You just need to know that roadmap, that GPS back to peace within yourself. 
and practice those things that work best for you. My my religion now is find out what works for a person and have them do that. Hmm. Yeah, sort of a pragmatic, it, it, it makes sense, a therapist's pragmatic approach to spirituality and religion, right? Um, Absolutely. I, I, you know, as I was reading your book, um, I was getting curious about, and you do speak to it in the book, and um, we'll put a link in the show notes to where people can find your book on your website and elsewhere. Um, well, uh, spoiler alert, it's, it's, it's great. People should read it. I loved it. Um, but in there, you talk about the four most common themes that arise during an MDMA journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about those four themes and how you deal with those. Sure. Hopefully I'll remember them. <laughs> so we'll see. I've got them written um, down one if, of you them is... any, if you need a prompt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is, you know, obviously trauma work. You know, people know that it helps with PTSD. And a lot of people come to that, uh, me for that. <clears throat> but a lot of these people have actually done a lot of trauma work. And so for a certain amount of the people coming to me for trauma work, I see what they really need is a second thing, which is, how to open up to more love, peace, and joy. You know, they've been so focused on their trauma that they aren't aware or know how to get to peace, love, and joy. And that's like a counterbalance to doing all the trauma work. So that's the second thing is is more peace, love, and joy. The other uh, main thing that people come to me for is um, couples therapy you know, relationship issues or working out issues with their uh, husband or wife or partner. And it's amazing for that. You know, I, I, I have a best-selling book on couples therapy, but I tell people, well, we can do this the quick way in a day, or we could do it over two years, which would you prefer? <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like that. Um, and then the fourth thing that people come to me for is, they're faced with some important crossroads, some important decision they're trying to make, either about a relationship or a job or their their mission in life or um, what's their next step. And the quietness of mind that MDMA creates and the soberness where you can like contact your intuition is very helpful for getting that deep guidance. Yeah, it's really coming to light, this sort of, as you described it, the Swiss army knife nature of MDMA, because mechanistically, it's, mm-hmm. it seems like it's helping with something that is underneath or behind a lot of the ways in which human beings struggle, right? This fear um, or being defended, being anxious, being uh, blind to what I call sort of the puppet masters leaking in our, or lurking in our subconscious, dictating our life and... Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds like a, a profound tool for helping with a lot of those different things, which then helps with a lot of different conditions or, or problems that people have. Yeah, once you get through the the defensive thinking mind, that's one level of defense, and then there's emotional defenses, but then there's also energetic defenses. You know, we don't realize that we might have like a constriction around our heart. That's always there. So you don't notice it. You know, if you interview a fish and you ask them, how's the water? They go, what are you talking about? So um, the way people have these constricted areas of their body that keep them from feeling or keep them from opening or or being uh, receptive to, say, more peace, love or joy, that becomes definitely a part of the session where they realize, oh, wow, something in my chest feels really different. It feels relaxed. Uh, I didn't know it was tight until now. And now I can see that that was really uh, being held in and protecting me from maybe even a certain memory of when somebody broke up with them or something like that. So we work on releasing these uh, muscle and more subtle energetic things. I mean, even now, people aren't aware of it, but it's like it's raining diamonds on us of peace. You know, um, just like cell phone uh, transmissions are everywhere, 
Well, the, the vibration of peace is everywhere. The vibration of love is everywhere. The vibration of, of hate is everywhere. It's just a matter of what you tune into. And we need to tune, learn how to tune our heart and our bodies to these finer vibrations so that we can experience the feelings and the wisdom that is our birthright. So maybe, you know, MDMA acts as a vibrational calibration, right? It, 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 if we're going to sort of take this vibration idea, literally that it's, it's shifts the frequency of your energy so that, um, you can, it's easier for you to be more in tune with love or peace. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you find that vibration, that frequency, it gets it easier. Every time you do it, it, you get easier knowing where that is in yourself, how to get there. And uh, then mm -hmm. there's, of course, practices like uh, meditations or sometimes even phrases that I'll give people that help them to get back there when they're not on the medicine. Because, you know, we need a lot more ecstasy and love in the world now. And we need people to have easier access to it, not just on meditation retreats or on drugs, but in everyday life. Right. And I guess that's, that's the point, right? The point is not to have somebody be on MDMA all the time. It's to use MDMA as a tool to show them where they can get back to in everyday waking life. And then you, it sounds like you, in integration, you give them some strategies to help cultivate that skill of getting back to that place. Yeah, I uh, definitely. And, you know, a lot of people say, God, I wish I had taken this 30 years ago because it might have given me a shortcut to this experience. And, uh, it, it, you know, just like any technology, there's, there's quick ways to do things and there's slow ways to do things. We're doing this interview over, over uh, you know, technology. Well, you could come to my place. That'll take you, you know, 50 hours of travel, but better that we can just do it, you know, and press a button. And I think as the world has gotten more complex, uh, we have these now sacred medicines that can show us back to the simplicity of just caring for each other. You know, I, mm -hmm. I sometimes guide whole families on this drug this medicine um, to help the family unit get back together. And I think there's going to be, a, when it gets FDA approval, it, there's going to be, instead of using alcohol to, you know, get people connected, people will use low doses of MDMA to get connected and overcome our loneliness and realize that in, in the terms of uh, my, my old friend Ramdas used to say, we're walking each other home and in a complex world, we need all the help we can get. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I do want to hover over that phrase shortcut for a second and get your, get your thoughts about this. Cause I think to say that this is a shortcut is not to imply that, that, uh, you don't need to do any work. Right. That, that I, I imagine that even though MDMA is an incredible tool and can help facilitate healing and, and make it a lot faster or transformation, um, it doesn't mean that it does it for you necessarily. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that it well certainly doesn't do it for you. But the good news, though, is, you know, as a psychotherapist, getting people to face their issues felt like I was kind of doing surgery without an anesthetic, you know, mm. and it was hard and it sometimes hurt. One of the things I like about the MDMA is I can talk about their trauma, their issues, whatever, and they enjoy the process. You know, that's what's very different. It doesn't, it is work, but the work is, you know, there's a difference between enjoyable work and work you don't like. So um, I find that people enjoy the process on MDMA where normal, in normal therapy, they don't. Now, of course, there are things that you have to do then in the integration session, you know, like meditate 10 minutes a day or do this particular tool to overcome uh, difficulties in the relationship. 
Um, that also be, is a type of work. But once you know what works for you, um, it's not as difficult as just feeling like, well, I don't even really know what works. You know, once you're, if you're lost and you're going the wrong direction, once you find out the right direction you're supposed to go, you're still a long way from where you want to go. But now that you're heading in the right direction, it feels really good. And MDMA, when done well, can give you that sense of, oh, now I know the right direction. Now I know that this helps. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll continue with that practice. Right. You know, Jonathan, I'm always curious when I, when I meet somebody like you, who's an experienced practitioner, who's been, who was around in the days before MDMA was made illegal. Like you got a chance to research it with your master's thesis and work mm -hmm. with it clinically. Um, and then, you know, you made the decision to work in the so-called underground, right. And continue using this medicine to help people. And now with the publication of this book, you've, you're, you're very, you know, above board and, 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 uh, forward about your decision to continue using this medicine. Talk to us a little bit about how you navigate the potential legal ramifications of, uh, talking about using a schedule one substance. Yeah. Well, I, you know, in the training that I do for coaches, therapists, I have to go into that in a lot of depth because uh, I don't want I want to make sure nobody gets in trouble. And I tell them, well, there's a great thing I do to avoid legal problems. And that is I don't do anything illegal. Hmm. <laughs> so that's a, talking to somebody on Zoom uh, is perfectly legal. And um, I I often tell them how they can get the medicine, uh, but I'm not involved in getting them the medicine. So it's up to them to, you know, they, they take whatever they take in the privacy of their own home, and then they connect on my Zoom link and we talk. So mm -hmm. uh, all of that is perfectly legal. And that's the way that I've been able to be more forthcoming. And, you know, the, the local sheriff where I live sends me clients, you know, so no kidding. <laughs> everybody knows I'm doing this. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows I'm doing this, but I'm not doing anything illegal. So, uh, it's not a problem. And, and even in the course that I teach, I have to, uh, let those people know how they can make sure that their clients can get the medicine in a way that does not put them at risk. And that, you know, you have to go into all those details in order to make sure that uh, everybody's as safe as possible. And you provide links in your book to places where people can buy test kits um, because, you know, as, as we know, uh, when you are sourcing a drug like MDMA from an, uh, a source that isn't, you know, a pharmaceutical company, then there's a risk of impurities. And some of those impurities can be really, really dangerous. You, you talk about fentanyl in the book, for example, um, and fentanyl test strips are really cheap. Uh, so if folks, if you're going to elect to take a drug that you got from a non, you know, FDA sanctioned source, you should test it. Yeah. And just so people feel as safe as possible that way. And, you know, they don't need to buy the book. I want to let them know how they can be safe. Um, the best test strips for fentanyl, which is very rare in MDMA, very, very rare, uh, but, you know, can be life threatening. So, you can get those at dancesafe.org for $1.99, and those are the best test strips for fentanyl. And you can also get test, testing kits to see the purity of the MDMA at dancesafe.org as well. Yeah, we're, we have mentioned Dance Safe before on the show. They're a great organization, a great advocacy group for harm reduction um, and safe mm -hmm. substance use. Um, Jonathan, I, I was, we're just about at the end of our hour. And, um, I was wondering if there's, if there's anything else you would tell somebody who's interested in becoming an MDMA assisted facilitator, therapist, coach, um, in your mm -hmm. experience as a teacher and trainer, um, what, what might be useful for them to know if they're pretty naive, maybe they're experienced therapists, but they're just sort of interested in using this powerful tool. Anything in addition to what we've already talked about? Well, to do it well, you can do it sloppily, in which case it can get dangerous, or you can do it uh, well in terms of having information. Certainly the, the book uh, is helpful along that line. But I suggest that people enter a program. There's several programs now. Um, 
mine is probably the most popular currently because it's 10 times cheaper than the others. Uh, and they can go to mdmatraining.net to find out about that. But there's a surprising amount of stuff to know about, including what to do with any difficult situation arises. You know, our first responsibility is harm reduction. And you have to make sure that everything is taken care of. So you're not putting, you know, first law of medicine is do no harm. Then, of course, there's a lot of modalities that work ridiculously well on MDMA that are a little bit clunky otherwise, like, you know, internal family systems or prolonged exposure or EMDR. I go into a lot of these methods in the program I teach because uh, even if you have a little bit of background with them, not on MDMA, uh, when you're using them on MDMA, it's a little bit different how you use them. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned IFS before. We we had Dick Schwartz on the podcast months ago, and we talked to him a little bit about combining IFS with psychedelics. One of the things we talked about that I'd, before I let you go, I'd love to get your feedback on is um, this sort of rubber banding or snapback phenomenon where the way Dick described it was if you had protector parts that we didn't get informed consent from, so to speak, like, you know, we MDMA mm -hmm. relaxes them by virtue of the drug effect. And then when the person's sober again, that maybe something that contributes to the post MDMA depression is these protectors coming back online and they weren't ready for this person to feel at peace. They weren't ready for this person to feel vulnerable. Do you ever see that in any of your clients? I'd say I see it in maybe 5%. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, I train or talk about with the people I, I have in the training. Um, but the data shows that that isn't as popular as people first thought, you know, mm. uh, in the IFS model, that would seem like it would be a problem. But uh, the data is really not showing that that's a common thing. In fact, the data, to everybody's surprise, showed that with a lot of uh, MDMA, people get better over time rather than come back to their old habits. And that's really mm. unique. You know, if you stop therapy, normally you kind of regress back to how you were, um, you know, whether it be uh, drinking or depression. What they find with a lot of the MDMA work is that, you know, people do one or two sessions and they keep on improving, even though they're not doing the MDMA anymore. And that seems to be somewhat unique to MDMA. And they're not sure why that is the case. You've had some people on that have talked about what's called the critical learning period and things like that. And um, but if you have it in your mind that you're going to snap back, your expectations can sometimes create that. You know, I once had a client who actually uh, took a magnesium supplement thinking it was the MDMA. And I guided him and uh, he didn't know he had taken the magnesium supplement. He had a wonderful experience because his expectation was that he'd open and have a wonderful experience. And later when he found out that it was actually the wrong pill, you know, he was like, oh, my God. That's within me? Yeah, it's within yeah. all of us. Uh, and, and our expectations often create our reality. Uh, so it's, it's good to know what your expectations are. It's, I guess it's a good thing he discovered that it was the wrong pill or else he would have taken what he thought was magnesium the next day and had the best day of his life and <laughs> not realized why. Actually, he did. He took the, I told him to take the magnesium pill at night. That was a real MDMA. And he ended up having another six hours of great time. That's how no he, kidding. that's wow. how he figured it out. Like, oh my God, if that was a real MDMA at night, what was, what was I taking before? And that's how he figured it out. That's incredible. Well, Jonathan, I'm so grateful that you joined us for this interview. Um, I know you've mentioned it a couple of times, but here at the close of the show, please tell people where they can learn more about your book, about you, and about your training. Well, if they go to xtcasmedicine.com, they can learn about the book, and they can also get a lot of free information I do about how to avoid psychedelic trips, how to enhance them. Uh, that's all free on that website. And uh, they can also contact me. Or if they're interested in the training, 
they can learn all about it at mdmatraining.net. And those are the two main websites. And uh, also, people are free to email me. I'd be glad to answer their questions. Are you still taking clients these days? Um, I take uh, clients, but I'm booked for uh, two or three months. And I do have a lot of people that I train that I refer people to if people need a session before them. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jonathan. Really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and uh, being an advocate for what we feel like is sort of the next generation of, of psychotherapeutics. So thanks again for coming on. It's an exciting time. Thanks for having me, Steve. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.